Um, Our scripture reading today is taken from several chapters in Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Chapter 11, 2, verses 2 and 12. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Chapter 13, verse 10. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Chapter 15, verses 25 and 33. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Chapter 21, verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Chapter 28, verse 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who talks in wisdom will be delivered. This is God's word. Good to see so many of you on this uh, holiday weekend. Um, Thank you for choosing to be here this morning. We are in the middle of a series, uh, going through the book of Proverbs, talking about wisdom. And we're going to be doing this all throughout the fall, all the way to Christmas time. And what we've been seeing is that according to Proverbs, wisdom is not a technique as much as it is becoming the kind of person that makes wise decisions. So what Proverbs is gearing us towards, what it's aiming us at, is not necessarily step one, two, three, and four for how you become a person who is wise, but it's, it's describing for us, it's helping us get a vision of the kind of character you need in order to become a person who can make good decisions. And what we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks is we've been, we've been contrasting the person that we call wise with the person that Proverbs calls a fool. And the principal error of a fool is pride. A fool is a person who has a high opinion of themselves and a high opinion of their opinions about everything. Do I need to say that again? One more time. A fool is a person who has a high opinion of themselves and a high opinion of their opinion about everything. They've got it all figured out. They think independently from the community. They don't receive correction very well. So a person who's a fool is a person who's got their mind made up, and if they have their mind made up, then you can't tell them otherwise. They're self-assured and unbending and unteachable. They're proud. In contrast, a wise person, according to Proverbs, listens to the advice of others. Wise people think within the context of community. They're always open to correction. They're always open to the advice and the counsel of other people. They're unsure of themselves and their opinions because life is messy. It's nuanced. And so wisdom requires humility. It requires... The fool is a proud person. The wise person is a humble person. That's the distinction. There's a story told about Socrates 
who went to the oracle of Delphi, and the oracle of Delphi proclaimed him the wisest of all men on the earth. But Socrates, we're told, did not become proud over this declaration by the oracle. Instead, he interpreted it this way. He interpreted that the oracle must mean that he alone of all the men in the world knew that he was not wise. So Socrates was wise because he knew he was not wise. That means there are two kinds of people. There are fools who think themselves wise, and there are the wise who know that they're fools. Or to put it this way, there are the proud who consider themselves humble, and the humble who know that they're proud. And what Proverbs teaches us is that the only way to become wise is to know that you're not and that you need wisdom. The only way to truly become wise is to know you're not and that you need wisdom and to cry out to God for it, and that requires humility. So you see there in Proverbs 11 too, with the humble, there is wisdom. So wisdom requires humility, and therefore pride is the enemy of wisdom. The proud, verse 5 of chapter 3, lean on their own understanding. They are wise in their own eyes, 3, 7. And so what we want to talk about this morning is just this issue of pride. We want to talk about pride as it relates to wisdom, humility as it relates to wisdom. And I want to say three things about pride from these passages, from these verses that are, you know, all throughout the book of Proverbs. These three things. First, the definition of pride. Secondly, the danger of pride. And then thirdly, the cure for pride. So those three things, the definition, the danger, and the cure related to pride, okay? Let's look at this together, starting with just this. What is pride? What's the definition? And there are a few things that we can learn from these verses in the book of Proverbs. A couple of things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make three statements to help us understand what, what the Bible means by pride. First, pride is wanting to be over God, not under him. Pride is wanting to be God in the place of God, wanting to rule God, not be ruled by him, wanting to take the place of God. If you look in chapter 15, verse 25, and sixteen nineteen, the Hebrew word that's translated pride means to be exalted or to be high and lofty there. And typically, all throughout the Bible, it is used to describe God, but it's often used to describe the desire of sinful humanity to take God's place and be exalted above him. And so Peter Kreeft, Peter Kreft, I guess is how you say his name, who I'm going to quote quite a bit this morning, who's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, who couldn't quite pull it out against Miami yesterday, unfortunately. Had to throw a college. It's college football season, folks. You've got to throw something in there, right? Philosophy professor at Boston College. He wrote a book called Back to Virtue. He says this. He says, Pride is the greatest of all sins because it's the root of every other sin. The point he makes is, he says, it is, it is uh, the root of all sin and rebellion because it was the sin of Satan at the very beginning of the, of the dawning of the universe. And nobody's ever expressed this better than John Milton does in his poem, Paradise Lost. And so if you permit me, I want to read a couple lines from the poem. It's very hard uh, to follow, but it's very hard to read, and even more so to listen to. But I think it gets at something that's really important. Here's how John Milton puts it. He says, this is Satan. This is Satan once the angels have fallen with him from heaven and they find themselves in hell. He gathers them together and begins to um, pontificate to them and to... Give a mo- basically give a motivational speech to all, of, to all of the fallen angels who've just lost the great war against God. He says, Is this the region? This the soil, the climb, said the lost archangel. This the seat that we must change for heaven. This mournful gloom for that celestial light. Be it so. Since 
He who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right. Farthest from him is best. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors. Hail, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell. Receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. Do you hear that? The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matters where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he who thunder hath made greater. Here at last, we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. There's so much, there's so much in those few short lines. But I want you to see what what he is getting at, what John Milton is getting at as he describes Satan's speech is his pride, his his wanting to flee from God, to be free of him, to rule him, not, not to serve but to reign, even if it's in hell, to be exalted, to be lifted up, was what Satan desired. It is the first and greatest sin because it is the living heart of all sin. Every sin says to God, not your will, but mine be done. And if the first and greatest commandment is have no other gods before me, then what pride does is pride puts me in the place of God. Pride, pride disobeys the very first commandment. It puts me ahead of God, me above God. So pride is, first of all, wanting to take God's place in my life, wanting to be at the control panel of the universe, wanting to be over him, not under him. But secondly... Secondly, what we learn is that pride not only excludes God, it also excludes our neighbor. Pride's wanting to be exalted above God, but if, if, if by definition pride is wanting to be exalted above God, then therefore it's also wanting to be exalted above others, to be better than others, to be thought or to think myself better than other people. So pride is then by definition competitive. And C.S. Lewis made this observation in mere Christianity. He put it this way. He said, and this is so helpful, he says, Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. (laughs) It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at somebody else being the big noise. This is Lewis talking. He says, pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than other people. So pride is needing to think you're better than other people. And that's why Proverbs in chapter 13, verse 10 says that if, if pride's in your heart, it'll make you insolent. Do you see that word, verse 10? That is, it'll make you rude, it'll make you condescending towards others. Proverbs eleven twelve. whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. And so a proud person is a person who's always pointing out the faults of others, who's using their words to bring others down, because, of course, if you can bring others down, then you go up. And so pride destroys relationships. Max Licato wrote a children's book called you're special, and it's really, it's, it's, it's a neat little book, and he tells the story of a, a society of, they're not people, they're wimmicks, 
And what the Wemmicks do all day long is they go around and they, they somehow have, have this unending supply of dots and stars. And all day long they go around and they give one another dots or stars. Dots for bad, you know, if they trip and fall in the mud or if they don't do well in school or if they try to sing and are not very good singers or whatever it might be, they give you, they, they just run around giving one another dots. But then there's stars and if you do something well, if you, you know, run the race and you win or if you, whatever it might be, if you succeed, then you get a star. And this whole society of, of creatures runs around and all day long, all they do is, is paste dots and stars on one another. And it becomes this big ranking system of who has the most dots, you know, and who has the most stars. And Lucado's point is, is this is the way, this is the way human society works. Because at the end of the day, what we all want is we want to be thought better than other people. Our heart, the pride in our heart, this desire for ascendancy, even above God, causes us to also want to ascend and be thought better than others. C.S. Lewis issues a very, very important warning, I think. He says, when we find, and the irony is, is that Christianity sometimes doesn't cut against that. It actually increases the sense of running around doing this to one another. And so C.S. Lewis says, whenever we find that our religion is making us feel that we are good, above all, if it makes us feel that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. So pride is wanting to take God's place in my life. It's needing to feel better than other people. Uh, but thirdly and finally, and really what bringing all this together, really what, what, what the Bible means when it talks about pride is pride is self-preoccupation. Pride is self-obsession. The prideful person is always thinking about themselves, always worrying about themselves, always obsessing about what other people think about them. And it's subtle in the text, but if you look at Proverbs 13.10, uh, particularly in the NIV, the NIV says it this way. The NIV translates the verse, where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. And let me explain that if I can. I'm going to try. Uh, Ashley's been sick for the last couple of days, and so when she's sick, you know, I mean, things just go into chaos in the house because then it's up to me, and that's a bad recipe for me to keep things kind of going. And so so she's, I mean, I mean, and, and she doesn't get sick very often, but when she gets sick, she goes down for the count. And so she's laying in her bed and really can't, you know, so weak she can barely even move. And, and her voice is kind of scratchy, so she, but she's laying in bed, you know, and all day long she's trying to bark out orders to me and make sure I know kind of where things need to go. And I went to the grocery store, and then everything's got to get put, you know, and whatever it might be. And what's funny is, is she's just trying, she's not trying to be bossy. She just knows that if things don't get put away where they're supposed to go, then Tuesday morning when it's time for kids to go to school and all that kind of stuff, it's just going to be absolute chaos. She's just trying to help me help the family. And yet, all you know, I, there's this temptation all day long when she says, you know, don't put that there, put that here. Do you think I'm stupid? Right? Because what I do, no, listen, what I do, what I do to her trying to be helpful to me is she's not, she's not making it, she's not saying you're stupid. She's just making sure I know where to put things. But what I hear her say is, you're stupid. Because what do I do? What am I doing, right? I'm taking something that's very innocent on her part, and I'm making it all about me. She's not talking about me. She's, she's, she's not making a judgment on me at all. She just wants to make sure things get where they need to go so that the kids can, you know, take care of things, but I make it about me. I take it personally, right? And, and the proud person, that's what happens. The self is always calling attention to itself. It's always, it's always personal. You know, you shouldn't do that. You should do this. He hates me. No. No. Right? Any sense of correction. 
You take it personal. Because pride, pride is in there, taking things that aren't about you and turning them and making it about you. Peter Kreef says, pride has ingrown eyeballs. Humility stares outward in self-forgetful ecstasy. So you see, what, what, the passage, what this passage means and what the Bible's talking about when it talks about pride is not thinking too highly of yourself. That's, pride's not thinking too highly of yourself. It's thinking about yourself too much. It's self-preoccupation. Humility, then, isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Humility is self-forgetfulness, which is why C.S. Lewis goes on in Mere Christianity to say, don't you think, or he says, don't think that if you met a truly humble person, you would come away from being with him thinking he was so humble. <laughs> he will not be somebody who's always telling you he's a nobody. You see, that's, what, that's, draw, that's, that's drawing attention to himself. He says, all you would remember from coming away from a truly humble person is how much he seemed to be totally interested in you. And then he says, the essence of humility is not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, two practical applications before I move on to the second point. Okay, first, if pride is self-preoccupation, then both, hear me, both self-righteousness and self-loathing are the opposite of humility because they both start with self. So the self-righteous person thinks highly of himself and not very highly of other people. <laughs> right? The person with low self-esteem thinks very highly of others, doesn't think much of himself, but he's still thinking about himself. So again, Peter Kreft says, pride and despair are twin brothers. There's a secret despair, excuse me, there's a secret pride and despair, a tragic grandeur, an overweening claim unfulfilled, and there's a secret despair at being human and pride's demand to play God. So if you're here this morning and you're despairing because of your failures and you're beating yourself up, part of the way of you getting to healing is to realize that you're just as proud as the smug, self-righteous person. Second application. If pride is self-preoccupation, then both self-righteousness and self-loathing are the opposite of humility. But second, what that means is that there's a difference between being moral and being humble. Right? And Christians are people who are moral and humble. So you can be really, really bad and be proud, or you can be really, really good and still be proud. And what separates a Christian from a non-Christian is not morality. Okay? What separates a Christian from a non-Christian is not morality. There are plenty of good, moral, church-going, nice people who are not Christians. What distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian is humility. A self-righteous Christian is an oxymoron. Even if it's that you're self-righteous about self-righteousness... Right? A self-righteous Christian is a contradiction in terms. But a despairing Christian is not right either. The way you know you're a Christian is the gospel is making you humble, which is the opposite of being smug and self-righteous and the opposite of despairing at the same time. So there's a difference between moral, being moral and being humble, and Christians are both moral and humble because what the gospel does is it brings humility in to replace the pride. Now let's see how that works in just a minute, okay? But the second thing we want to talk about this morning, 
So if that's the definition of pride, pride is wanting to take the place of God in my life, wanting to feel better, needing to feel like I'm better than other people, and it's a preoccupation that that encompasses both self-righteousness and self-loathing. Secondly, we want to see what what the Proverbs teach about uh, how destructive pride is. So not only the definition, but also the destructiveness of pride and how it causes all kinds of trouble in our lives. Proverbs 16, 18. If you look there. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's a pretty famous verse. And what it means is that pride sets you up for disaster. It sets into motion circumstances that will end in destruction. It does not say pride sometimes goes before destruction. Uh, The metaphor is if you're watching a parade and you know that there goes pride along the parade route, and pretty soon you know here comes destruction. There's pride. So as a parent, here's what you can do. You can track. There's pride in my kid. Oh, boy, where's the destruction coming? You know, or in your spouse or in yourself. Pride comes before destruction. And so if you don't deal with your pride, then it'll ruin your life. It'll ruin your relationships. It'll ruin your enjoyment of people, all these things. Why? Well, there's a practical reason and there's a cosmic reason. A practical reason that's right here in the text a cosmic reason that is implied and reinforced in other places in the Bible, and we'll look at both, okay? Look at Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. It's the lamp of the wicked. Right? Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. So the illustration there is, is a lamp, and at night when you need to be able to see because it's pitch dark outside, you can only see by the light of the lamp, and so if you have a red light, then everything looks red. And if you have a green light, everything looks green. So the metaphor then means this, that pride distorts like a lamp, distorts and colors everything you see. It becomes sort of lens through which you view the world. Now we've said over and over again, right? Wisdom is being in touch with reality. It's knowing how things work, knowing how things really are, being able to problem solve towards a solution. And that's why pride is so destructive, because what pride does is it causes you to be blind. It causes you to, your, your view of things to be distorted. A proud person doesn't learn from his mistakes. He doesn't think in community. He doesn't receive and open himself up to correction. And when you live that way, you cut yourself off from the very means of becoming wise. You'll be blinded by your own false perception of the way things are going, by your own false reality that your pride creates as it causes you to see things in a certain way. You won't make good decisions because you'll be out of touch with reality. And and, and you can't be wise. But the deeper reason why pride is so destructive is because it is contrary to the very center of all reality in the universe. (laughs) See, Christians, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Christians believe that at the center of all reality is a community of persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call it the doctrine of the Trinity. And within the Trinity, among the persons of the Trinity, there is a dynamic that is the spring from which the entire universe was made. What I'm trying to say is that the way the Trinity works within the Trinity is the way all of life, the whole universe works, because, it's, because it, the, it flows out of the life of the Trinity. And early Christians used a particular word to describe this dynamic, this inner life of the Trinity, and it's the word perichoresis. And if you're taking Latin, then you'll, you'll be able to identify in that word is the word choreography. You add the prefix peri to it. Peri means around. So the word perichoresis means to dance around. So what the early Christians were trying to get at is that each of the divine person 
centers on the others and gives glory and delights in the others and dances around them. None of the divine persons in the Trinity demand that the others revolve around them. That's pride. See, me-centeredness. You center your life on me. You do a dance around me. But in the, in the Trinity, each of the persons circles the other two, deferring to them, pouring love and delight and adoration into them, and it creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of love and joy. Called the Trinity. You see, the teaching is that in God there's an other's orientation. <laughs> Within the persons of the Trinity, self-giving love defines the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of the persons of the Trinity is self-forgetful towards the other two persons. That's the way the Trinity works. And therefore, it's the only way life works. And so, in pride, to always be making it all about you, to demand that God, let me think about this, to demand that God center his life around you. Which is what we do when we complain about our spouse or our kids or when we're anxious about the way things are going, to demand that God center his life around me, to demand that other people center their lives on me. If you live in that way, if you live that way, if you let pride get in there and do that, you're on a collision course with reality. You're out of touch. You're out of touch with the way the universe works. And remember, that's the opposite of wisdom. Wisdom's being in touch with reality. Wisdom is knowing how things work And so at the very center of how the universe works is humility and generosity towards others and self-forgetfulness that leads to joy and intimacy and blessing and pride or being self-obsessed that leads to brokenness and destruction. Pride leads to destruction. Because proud people are not wise people. They're out of touch with reality. So unless you deal with your pride and begin to center your life on God and serving others, you won't be wise. You'll make terrible decisions. You'll be rash You'll alienate people who could be good friends to you. You'll be looking at life through the wrong lenses. That's why pride is so destructive. It's the enemy of wisdom. And again, Peter Kreeft puts it this way. He says, there are two kinds of people. Fools who think they're wise. And the wise who know they're fools. Or the proud who think they're humble. And the humble who know they're proud. The only way to become wise is to admit you're a fool. And the only way to become humble is to admit that you're proud. And so how do we deal with our pride? It leads to destruction. How do we deal with our pride? What's the cure? The last point I want to mention this morning. It's right here in Proverbs 15.33, if you'd look there with me. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. And humility comes before honor. How do you deal with your pride? How do you get healed of it so that you can become a wise person? You have to get the glory that only comes to the humble. You see, what that, what that verse teaches is that there's an honor that only comes to the humble. That word honor there is really the word glory. And what the Bible teaches us is this, was, this is what our hearts need. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian Christians, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And he's talking to them about their pride. And he uses a, a specific word to describe uh, their pride that's so helpful. He says, don't be conceited. And when we call somebody conceited, we mean that they are excessively proud. But the Greek word that gets translated in that verse is the word kinodoxoi. And doxoi meaning doxology or glory or weight. The glory, the honor, the weight of God that makes him the supreme being in all of the universe. Doxoi means glory. 
doxology. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, that was the word that was used here in Proverbs 15, 33. Doxology. Doxa. Doxoi. You add the prefix kino, which means without, and what the word comes to is this. It means that we live without glory, that we're lacking glory. Paul says, don't be lacking glory. Don't be, be, do nothing out of rivalry and out of a heart that is lacking glory because it'll make you proud and it'll destroy everything. But in humility, see, the solution is humility. But what we have to know is we have to understand our hearts well enough to know that what Paul is saying, what the Bible's teaching, is that there's something about our hearts where we're lacking in a glory. What the real problem is, is deep inside, we live with a feeling that we don't matter. That's something wrong with us. We're empty. We're insecure. And that's the reason for the rivalry. That's the reason for always putting other people down so that I can go up. It's why we belittle people. It's why we constantly need to feel better than other people. We're trying to get a glory. We're trying to prove our significance because we're empty on the, in the inside. And so the Bible says, you can't run away from this. We need a glory. So what do we do? We achieve. We work hard to be successful or to be moral or to be good, to try to fill up the emptiness inside. But what happens is, is it inevitably turns to pride. You see, any honor, any glory that you earn for yourself will make you proud. That is particularly a temptation for religious people. And a lot of us qualify in the room. We need to know this. If you work hard to be good in order to fill up the emptiness inside, and if you make your moral record your glory, then you might be good, but probably you'll become proud. And that is why the church is full of self-righteous people who follow all the rules and know all the right answers. But let's be honest, they're terrible lovers of people. They work hard. They don't do bad things, but they're hypercritical and they gossip and they complain. They shun people who don't meet their standards. Because you see, the pride is ruining all the good. This is a real problem. It's a real problem. So how do we get the glory that our hearts need and not become proud in the process? And the answer, the only answer, is that there's a glory and a significance and an honor that we can have that isn't attained or earned or merited. It's given to the humble as a gift. Salvation is by grace, not by works. That's what the Bible teaches. We need a glory. But the way to get that glory isn't to work hard or become successful or moral or good. The way to get the glory your heart needs is to try, is not to try to work your way up to God. It's the opposite. The way to get the glory your heart so desperately needs is to see that God has come down. That salvation is by grace, that salvation is what God does, that through, that, that through Jesus, though he was God, Jesus did not hold on to his power and position, but made himself nothing, Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2. He took on human flesh and blood and came into the world to love and serve, serve us, which ultimately mean, meant dying on the cross for our sins. And so what the gospel of Jesus Christ means, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, where you come from. How badly you've screwed up in the past if you believe that Jesus Christ has done all of this for you. And if you say to God, Father, accept me not because of what I've done, but for Jesus' sake, then God looks at you, the Bible says, and loves you with the love of a father for his son or his daughter. And that's the, only, that's the glory that our hearts need. The praise of God. 
the applause of heaven, the, the praise of God. And that's the only glory that can fill up the emptiness inside, to have the praise of God, to have your heart filled with the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. But the only way it comes, it comes to the humble. It comes as a gift to the humble, not as something that's been achieved by the mighty or the strong or the wise or the proud. And so the argument Paul is making in Philippians chapter 2 is when you see Jesus working through humility to save you, then it will make you a humble person. And here's why. There are some gifts where in order to receive the gift, you have to acknowledge the insult. You know what I mean? I worked one time a few years ago with a guy who had uh, really, really bad halitosis. So much so. That's bad breath, by the way. So much so, he was a, he was a single, young single guy, and so much so that I was on staff, and the pastors were just saying, okay, what do we, how do we, this guy's not ever going to get a date if we don't do something about this, right? So you begin, what do you do? Do you, like, buy him a year's supply of mouthwash for Christmas? I mean, what, how do you, nobody's laughing, right? Do you, this, do you see how painful this is? I mean, this is painful, because, of course, if you don't, you know, my children love, one of their favorite things to do is to point out when the other kids in the family have bad breath, but you can't, you know, oh, your breath stinks, you know, you can't, you can't, you, you have no, no mechanism, right, you're completely lack self-awareness in this, and so we're, you know, how do you, man, can you imagine if we just kind of bought him some mouthwash, do you, do you, how hard that is, because in order to receive the gift, you have to receive the insult, so what you're saying is, every now and then, Ashley will say, hey, here's a piece of gum, are you telling me my breath stinks? Right? Okay. But the gospel says, what the gospel does, how it works into your life, the gospel offends your pride. It offends our pride because it tells us that we're not as great as we think we are. And so in order to receive the gospel, you have to acknowledge the insult. It requires humility. There's no other way into it. And it's not just bad breath, right? I mean... You, you are morally bankrupt. You are, I mean, you know, it's as bad as it could possibly be. And that's the insult you have to receive in order to come in. So the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1 and talking to the church. He said, not many of you were wise. Not many of you, he's very diplomatic. Not many of you were wise. In other words, you bunch of stupid people, right? Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were from good families. You were foolish. You were weak. You were low. You were not. That means you are nobodies. Insult after insult after insult. But then he says, but none of that matters because God put his love on you. And he didn't put his love on you because you were strong or because you were smart or because you were moral. Salvation is by grace. And so the message of the gospel is we're not strong, we're weak. We're not good, we're morally bankrupt. We've made a complete mess of our lives. And so we are so desperately wicked that God himself had to come down in Jesus to save us. But in order to receive the gift of salvation, you have to acknowledge the insult, which is how the gospel makes you humble. See, grace makes you humble. And the implication is, is when you connect with the grace of God in Jesus Christ, when the gospel becomes real to your heart, then you stop trying to run your life and you begin to trust in the Lord and lean on in your own understanding. Right? You're free to stop comparing yourself to other people all the time trying to be better than other people. You no longer have to feel like you're better than everybody else, and so you stop thinking about yourself so much, and the result is, is you, you start to become a wise person. 
So just two points of application. And I'm just going to make sentence, just say them. And then we're going to pray. The first is grace. Grace, only grace makes you humble. And remember, with the humble is wisdom. But the second statement I want to just end with is this. If you're proud, if you're condescending, if you're judgmental, if you're hypercritical, if you complain, if you belittle people with your words or in your mind, you know, if, if, if what follows you around is relational dysfunction and you're hard to deal with, if you're proud, then you've forgotten that salvation is by grace. And that's a great place to, to turn anew in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ this morning. And so as we sing together, I pray you do just that. Let's pray uh, as we finish up. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for the reminder this morning that your love for us is not because of anything that we have done to earn or to merit it, that it is purely by grace. And I pray that you drive home that truth to our hearts, that we might receive it, and even receive the insult so that we might be set free, that by your Spirit you might work humility into our hearts and that through humility that we might become wise. Because in wisdom, uh, there's great honor. And we need wisdom in order to uh, accomplish the mission that you've called us to, in order to bear fruit that would glorify you. And so we pray and we plead and we, we cry out for mercy. And ask that you would come and drive home to our hearts the truth of the gospel that it might humble us. That we might become great lovers of people and that we might become wise and no longer be foolish. These are the things we pray. And so we ask that as we sing now, that you would uh, ignite our hearts, excite our hearts with the truth of your love for us. And of the fact that our sins have been paid for because of Jesus' death on our behalf. Drive home. Grace to our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, if you're here and your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then the, the honor that your heart so desperately needs in order to work humility into your heart, in order for you to become a wise person, see, that's what we've been talking about, is to know the love of God for you, but to know that He's not put his love upon you because you've achieved anything or because you've merited anything. It's purely by the grace of God that I raise my hands now and pronounce over you the love that God has for you. Though you are not wise, though you are not of noble birth, though you are not mighty in strength, he has put his love on you. Let that sink into your heart and humble you that the Spirit might make you wise. That's the prayer we pray this morning. So receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.